Survivor. I gotta go. And everybody, welcome to Stop the Presses here on the 3rd of January. Yes, it's 2024. Hope I'm coming through clearly. I'm using a different device than usual, but coming to you from Texas today. Many, many topics on the horizon. And uh, lots is going on with um, various news outlets for which I'm a contributor Uh, including here at RBN, of course, I do want to make an announcement. This is a really important one. Many listeners know that I do a weekly report, a TV-like format on UKcolumn.org. Lots of good articles posted there. And there's a really good program that everybody wants to or ought to want to put on their calendar. This coming Sunday, the 7th of January, from... 6 to 9 p.m. UK time, but that's 1 to 4 U.S. Eastern time. That'd be noon to 3 p.m. Central time in the U.S. The International Center for 9-11 Justice and UK Column present Genocide and Empire examining October 7th and the geopolitics of the war on Palestine. Again, that's this coming Sunday, 1 to 4 Eastern time U.S., and uh, 12 to 3 Central Time U.S. Here's a little bit of information. The symposium will examine U.S. and Israeli geopolitical motivations behind the brutal onslaught of Gaza, quote, end quote. It will also explore the possibility, the possibility, allegation, that Israel allowed the October 7th attacks to happen in order to create a pretext for its ongoing military campaign. The symposium is hosted by the International Center for 9-11 Justice and UK Column. If you have trouble using the video player, and I can uh, put this uh, link on my show notes today, you can also watch the symposium on UK Column's X page. I will make that information available as soon as I can. The times that I gave are approximate. Sometimes starting and ending times can be a little bit off the exact given times. The um, introduction will be given by Dr. Piers Robinson. I met him in 2018 when I went to the UK for a media on trial uh, program. And genocide and self-defense under international law, Professor Richard Falk will speak, F-A-L-K, Oil, canals, and trade routes, economic factors underlying the ongoing genocide by Professor Atif Kubersi. A-T-I-F is Atif, F like Frank, A-T-I-F, Kubersi, K-U-B-U-R-S-I. Identifying structural deep events and state crimes against democracy in real time by Kevin Ryan. And Hegemonic Panic, October 7th as a deep event, Dr. Aaron Good, just like it sounds, G-O-O-D. 
Richard Falk, for example, is the Professor Emeritus of International Law at Princeton. Rather interesting CV there. From from 2008, that is, to 2014, Mr. Falk served as United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Palestinian Territories Occupied Since 1967. He has published extensively, including multiple books about international law in the U.N., and Professor Atif Kabursi is a professor emeritus of economics at, Mac- economics at McMaster University. In 1982, he joined the UN Industrial Organization as a senior development officer, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll make this information available in the show notes. Um, a very important and uh, um, timely, I might say, program put on by my colleagues in part uh, at UK Column. So uh, I wanted to share that right now. In just a few minutes, five minutes or less, we're going to bring on a friend of mine and a author and professor in his own right, Dr. Oliver Haydorn, and we're going to talk about a special brand of economics that has been on this show on occasion before including back in 2018 when I first came back to RBN to do Stop the Presses, and that was with Wallace Clink of Alberta, Canada, who is sort of a living intellectual descendant. He's still with us. He's getting up in years. An intellectual descendant, you might say, of what's known as the social credit economics, and it has nothing, and I repeat, nothing to do with the Chinese surveillance and rewards and punishment system, nothing whatsoever in fact, it predates that by decades upon decades, going back to its, you might say, discovery by Clifford Hugh Douglas, Major Douglas, as he was known, a British-born Scotsman. I believe that's his pedigree. And he was an engineer uh, in, in uh, endeavoring to carry out important projects in the United Kingdom And uh, we can learn more about that from our guest coming up in just a couple of minutes, Dr. Oliver Haydorn. But this is very interesting, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to want to hear this for many reasons, not just that it's a insightful way of looking at what's wrong with the economic system and a constructive way of, of fixing it, as important as that is, as monumentally important as that is, it also, in a roundabout way, explains why things are the way they are why things are in so many respects dysfunctional politically, economically, culturally, uh, you name it, across the board. And so it's a very empowering and enlightening formula, you might say, to correct what's going on with the economic system primarily. But when you fix the monetary slash economic system, when you get rid of its defects and make it work correctly, many other things have a tendency to straighten them, straighten themselves out. Many other problems become either non-existent or much more easily solvable. And that is incredibly correct, or excuse me, that's incredibly important right now at this pivotal time in U.S. and world history when we see apparent genocide going on, as I just talked about, in Palestine and many, many other seemingly intractable problems a almost worthless Congress in the U.S. that is at its lowest point possibly ever in terms of people considering it trustworthy, in terms of people considering it reliable. Uh, Some of the lowest 
um, popularity ratings that Congress has ever seen. And that's supposed to be an august, we would think, respectable institution with the House elected directly by the people. Of course, the Senate was not supposed to be popularly elected. They were supposed to be appointed through the states. They changed that with the 17th Amendment. That's something that I believe and have always believed should be changed back. So the U.S. Senate represents state interests since the states created the federal government, and then the House would be kept the people's house. But none of that is as it should be. The House is not the people's house. You might say it's the banker's house, ultimately. And the Senate no longer being um, appointed by the states involves wildly expensive and unnecessary statewide elections to elect U.S. senators that just add to the potential for election fraud, since that just mires Americans ever deeper in uh, one election after another. And I've, I've talked about the problems with elections on this show before, as has Ron Avery as my co-host many times. And that's another topic for another time in terms of getting into it any more deeply today. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll now ask uh, the board ops if maybe we have Oliver on the line yet or if he's about to be on the line. It should be about that time. Uh, Oliver Haydorn, I'm sure he'll be with us just momentarily, uh, has written a book called Social Credit Economics, a very important book, and other books, uh, The Relevance of Social Credit and uh, Catholic Teaching. There's some intersections there. Intersectionality, I believe, is the term. But I believe we have Oliver now. Is Oliver Haydorn there? Yes, I'm here. Hey, Oliver. Um Dr. Oliver Haydorn, uh, thanks for being with me today. Um, I, I don't know how much of the intro you heard. I, I'm doing today's show kind of short notice and uh, sort of grabbing on to whatever I can. I made some announcements about some other programs, but thanks for being on the show short notice today. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, now, um, we were talking off the air yesterday about something that you're obviously very well informed about. I mentioned your book. I have it right here in my hand, Social Credit Economics by M. Oliver Haydorn, Ph.D. And, of course, it gets into Major C.H. Douglas and his legacy, what he discovered, what he brought forth, what he helped launch and popularize, and others have carried the torch from there. You're one of them, obviously. And you have a a very informative web- website, socred.org, S like Sam, O-C-R-E-D, socred.org. Um, I've um, uh, been following that for quite a long time. But anyway, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Oliver, but just as importantly, tell us a little bit about C.H. Douglas in a kind of broad brushstroke kind of way and uh, get into a little bit about what social credit is, and then we can get right into its applicability and its relevance today. Yes, so my academic background is in philosophy. I uh, did a PhD at the International Academy of Philosophy in Liechtenstein, which is a tiny country in between Switzerland and Austria. And uh, while I was doing my PhD studies, I received a pamphlet in the mail. I'm Canadian, live in Canada, and there's a, an organization here based in the province of Quebec 
called the Pilgrims of St. Michael, who have been promoting Douglas social credit for many, many decades. And uh, one day, I think it was in 2002, one of their leaflets arrived in the mailbox, and I read it and uh, thought that they're definitely onto something here. And why hadn't we, you know, why haven't we heard about this Douglas social credit before? So, at the time, I had I think something like uh, probably twenty five thousand dollars in student debt, and it was a complete came as a complete shock to me to learn. Um, from this pamphlet that, uh, you know, the money supply, the bulk of the money supply exists in the form of bank credit, bookkeeping money. And it's something that the, the private banks create every time they make a loan or purchase. So the $25,000 that I had as a, a student debt was something that the banks had created out of nothing. And it, it had, you know, it was completely intangible. And had I paid that loan back the way that the bank had intended, had scheduled it, I was going to pay something like $8,000 in interest on top of the $25,000 loan. So at that time, it didn't really seem very <laughs> equitable to me or just, considering that, uh, considered as an isolated operation, the creation of the money itself is, is costless. I mean, banks do have legitimate operating expenses, and they should be able to charge to, to cover those. But there didn't seem to be any proportion in terms of what the service that they were offering, what it was actually costing them, and the amount of money that they wanted um, in return to cover the interest payments, $8,000 on a $25,000 loan. So uh, that's sort of what got me interested in this whole question of money. And I should mention already that uh, you know, Douglas Social Credit deals with fundamental issues uh, in the money system that go far deeper than any question of, of interest or usury. That's um, it's not an unimportant aspect of the problem, but it's it's not really the the heart of of the issue that Douglas was concerned with. But it was sort of my entry into into the world of uh, monetary reform. Now. Uh, C.H. Douglas was a British engineer. Uh, he was a mechanical engineer, and he had held posts all over the world. He'd, he had worked in India, he'd worked in Canada, he'd worked in Argentina, and he had achieved um, some status in his in his profession as a, uh, a very um, competent engineer who was in demand. And through a series of uh, serendipitous events, he stumbled on this whole question of, of credit and the financial system. And at one point, he was sent down to do um, some studies of the cost accountancy books at the aircraft factory, the Royal Aircraft Factory in Farnborough in England by the British government. This is at the time of, of the First World War. And he noticed something that was very curious, which was that if you look at the books, the aircraft factory was generating costs and prices at a faster rate than it was simultaneously distributing incomes in the form of wages, salaries, and dividends to its employees. So he thought that's a very strange sort of thing. You know, you've, you've got a company here, and it's if you look at the costs that it's 
generating every week, and those costs obviously go into prices, and you compare it with what individuals who work in the aircraft factory are actually being paid to produce the corresponding um, goods, there's a, a fundamental imbalance. There's a lack of purchasing power to cover the full value of what's being produced. And so he thought, well, if that's true in one factory, what's going on in other factories? And he, he studied other productive organizations, and the same pattern revealed itself unless the factory was headed for bankruptcy. So as long as the, the uh, productive organization was viable, they were at least meeting their costs or making a profit, then the same pattern was, was visible. They were producing costs and prices at a faster rate than they were generating, generating incomes. So this was sort of the key insight that, um, that got Douglas to look at finance and, and from an engineering point of view. And he realized that if the, the purpose of the financial system is to facilitate um, let's say, the fulfillment of economic aspirations, the delivery of goods and services that people need to survive and flourish with the least amount of resource consumption and labor, then the the financial system wasn't properly designed. And um, the easiest way of explaining what the problem is, so this is, again, this is apart from any question of, of interest or usury, the easiest way of explaining the, the core problem is that the financial system is not structurally honest. Right? So if it were properly designed, if it were designed in view of, let's say, um, the fu- of functionality, right? if you were going to introduce a financial system to maximize economic functionality, Albert, a a quick note. We got about one minute before the first break, but uh, keep going. But just be mindful of the music. Okay, keep going. Yeah, no worries. So um, if you wanted a a financial system that was designed in view of functionality, then it should be an honest system. It should be a structurally honest system, meaning it should accurately reflect in the, the world of numbers what's going on in the physical economy so that uh, whatever we produce, whatever real wealth we have in the physical economy should find a representation in the world of numbers. And our productive capacity, our useful productive capacity, should also be represented adequately, accurately in the financial virtual realm. And uh, if if we had that, then, you know, a lot of our problems, social problems environmental problems, uh, political problems, international problems, even a lot of these problems would disappear because Douglas, I think, demonstrated that it's, it's fundamentally the lack of honesty in finance, which is um, throwing a lot of other things out of whack. Uh, very good. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Oliver Haydorn, I appreciate that first segment. Uh, We'll get right back to that after the upcoming break. You're listening to Stop the Presses here with Mark Anderson live today, the 3rd of July, 2024. And we'll be right back after the following messages. Don't forget to check out the many informative articles at republicbroadcasting.org. 
And we'll see you in a minute. Avoid the IRS income tax. Escape the IRS. Let avoidincometax.com help you. We guarantee our five easy steps or your money back. Go to avoidincometax.com. Attention, freedom-loving patriots. Are you ready to dive deep into the principles that founded our great nation? Join me, Peter Seraphine, and the Institute on the Constitution as we light the way to a brighter future with the Liberty Lighthouse Classroom. At liberty-lighthouse.com slash classroom, you'll find a treasure trove of online courses on the U.S. Constitution, carefully crafted to empower you with knowledge to defend your rights and liberty, whether you're a student, a history enthusiast, or just a concerned citizen. These courses are for you. Gain a comprehensive understanding of our Constitution's principles, the wisdom of our founding fathers, and how to apply them in today's world. As a special offer to our freedom-loving listeners of Republic Broadcasting Network, use coupon code RBN at checkout and get 20% discount on any course. Join the Liberty Lighthouse Classroom and be a part of the movement to uphold the values that have made our nation exceptional. Unleash the power of knowledge and protect what truly matters, our Constitution. Visit liberty-lighthouse.com slash classroom today. Don't miss this incredible opportunity. Use code RBN for 20% off. Together, we'll be the beacon of freedom our founding generation envisioned. Liberty Lighthouse Classroom. Illuminating minds, empowering patriots. Here's some interesting news. Due to all the recent claims about possible nuclear wars, viruses, solar flares, and civil unrest, people are scrambling to prepare and stockpile food. But the one thing out of reach for many is an underground bunker. Until now. Because you can now have a 3D printed underground bunker in just one day. An excavator digs a hole in your backyard and 3dbunkers.com shows up in a small truck and sets up their 3D printer under a tent completely undetected. They can print as many rooms as you want at a fraction of the cost compared to traditional metal bunkers. 3D Bunkers uses polymer concrete, which is five times stronger than regular cement. YouTube 3DBunkers.com and watch the video. The creators of 3D Bunkers is looking for a business partner that can help bring this technology to the world. And we need to protect our way of life without living in fear. Contact Brad at 3DBunkers.com for more details or visit 3DBunkers.com. And welcome back to Stop the Presses, your host, Mark Anderson, on the 3rd of January, 2024. I might have inadvertently said July, wishful thinking, I suppose. Uh, but I live in South Texas, so I really don't need to go too far north uh, at any point for warm weather. But my guest today is Dr. Oliver Haydorn, author of Social Credit Economics. And he's been explaining a little bit about his background. You can check out a lot of his writings at socred.org, S O C R E D, socred, as in short for socialcredit.org. Nothing to do with the Chinese surveillance and reward and punishment system. Isn't that correct, Oliver? Yes, uh, that's uh, one of the important points to make. Uh, for many, many, many years, 
Douglas Social Credit has sort of been suppressed. It's not something that um, was talked about much in the, the mainstream media, even though here in Canada we have had social credit governments. There were social credit governments in the province of Alberta from about middle of the 1930s till, I think, the early 70s. And also in British Columbia, there was a social credit party that had held power on and off from about uh, the early 50s to the early 90s. But nevertheless, for many, many years, it's, it's, it's been suppressed so much so that you know, most Canadians wouldn't know anything of the Douglas social credit movement. And then, unfortunately, just a few years ago, the uh, Chinese Communist Party has uh, appropriated the term social credit to describe their totalitarian surveillance reward and punishment system, which has absolutely nothing to do with Douglas social credit. If anything, if we were to describe it, we'd have to say that it's, it's the very opposite of what Douglas intended, because... Douglas Social Credit is all about the decentralization of power. It's all about, in various ways, whether you know, economically or politically, giving common citizens the sanctions that they require to control governments or, or businesses. And whereas the, the Chinese system is about uh, controlling the citizens in the interests of, of the state or whoever controls the state. So it's a complete inversion, really, of, of what Douglas intended. And while you know, there's no document that I'm aware of that I, I can point to to verify this, um, I would say that it's, it must have been deliberate. It must have been deliberate on their part to obscure you know, the, the real social credit, because, of course, now whenever anybody hears social credit, if they're sort of politically aware, they immediately think of the, the CCP Chinese thing, um, which is, you know, it's sort of a, a New World Order style project, and, and immediately they, they turn off what you're trying to tell them about Douglas social credit. So mathematically, what, what are the chances that they would use the same term? It seems pretty, pretty slim, so I think it was quite deliberate. Uh, you know, an attempt to, to bury it once and for all. Um, I would go so far as to say that, you know, for those who've studied Douglas's works, not, not only his financial analysis and proposals for monetary reform, but also even his, his political ideas, his, his political analysis and proposals for political reform, would say that, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot there that if it were applied, it would actually do the opposite of what the one-worlders intended. It, it is, in fact, the very antidote to the New World Order. But uh, hardly anyone knows anything about it. So it's, it's, they've done a good job of keeping it under wraps, and now with the, the CCP social credit system, they have appropriated the term. It's, that's a form of ideological appropriation, I suppose. And uh, so anyone who comes across it will now be completely confused about, you know, well, which social credit are we talking about? Um, yeah. So. Uh, right there, right there, Oliver, let me mention yep. we're, we're in the short segment before the bottom of the hour when we do station ID and a few more ads. But based on what you said in the first segment, that the uh, economic system, the monetary, the virtual part, the monetary system, the financial system should reflect 
the physical reality of raw materials, um, much of which is free. Uh, m- many say these are bequeathed to us by God, that they're God-given things, all the raw materials. Man just, human human beings simply manipulate those raw materials into final products and services. So much is given through providence. And what... Um, what must be done, and we can get into this after the bottom of the hour, but we can begin to talk about this. What must be done compared to what we have now to bring both the monetary system and the financial system, the abstract part, into harmony with the actual physical reality of day-to-day production? And, you know, we can begin to break that down because that's very revealing, talking about a national dividend, what that is, how that's not the same thing as universal basic income though it might share some very general characteristics. So we can begin to unravel that now. Uh, We probably only have about a minute left if we're lucky in this segment, but we can start there and continue after the bottom of the hour. Uh, There's, matter of fact, we're going into the ads right now, I believe, so we'll pick it up right there after after the messages. Such platonic eye How they drown in incomplete capacity Strangers thought they mourned When the fear it calls How we drown in stylistic audacity Charge the common ground I want the truth You can't handle the truth You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network Real news, real talk, real people Because you can handle the truth Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plant. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste for the price of a cup of coffee. Hemppaste.com slash RBN. Free shipping on orders over $50. See the banners for Hemp Paste at republicbroadcasting.org and visit hemppaste.com slash RBN. Tahibo Tea Club's original pure pouty arco super tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit drinksupertea.com. The first word is drink, spelled D-R-I-N-K, then the word super, then the word tea. The complete website is drinksupertea.com or call us at 818-965-9113, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113. DrinkSuperTea.com. Homeowners, are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? 
A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Email Tom at republicbroadcasting.org. T-O-M at republicbroadcasting.org. And welcome to the second half of Stop the Presses here on the 3rd of January, 2024. My guest, Dr. Oliver Haydorn. We've learned a little bit in the broad brushstroke sense about C.H. Douglas, who in the early 20th century brought forth his discovery of social credit, his insights into social credit. We learned a little bit about how he found that um, costs and expenses would exceed the, the distribution of incomes um, whenever he looked into different companies uh, across England and whatnot. And uh, he found this defect and devised a way to fix that defect. Others have carried the torch since C.H. Douglas died in the 1950s. Some say a little prematurely. Uh, the Pilgrims of St. Michael, a Catholic order in Quebec, Canada, was mentioned. And they have a website, um, I believe it's just michael.org, if I'm not mistaken, uh, michaeljournal.org, excuse me, michaeljournal.org. They published the Michael Journal. Anyway, my guest, Oliver Haydorn. Oliver, um, let's get into the, the meat of this, the, the, uh, the mechanics of this, uh, in a way that uh, everyone can understand. The, the way that the financial system doesn't reflect reality and how to bring it into reality. Is Oliver still with us? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. I, I couldn't hear you for a moment. Keep going. All right. So, yeah, the, perhaps the easiest way of understanding the need for a reflection between, you know, the physical economic reality and the financial virtual world is to look at how this would work on the level of production and then how it would look on the level of consumption. So uh, Douglas would say, for example, if in a society, in a nation, you have a particular need on the part of the population for some sort of good or service on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have the raw material, the resources, the technology to meet that particular need for that good or service, then you've got what he called real credit. You've got the real capacity to produce goods and services that answer to human needs. So as long as that's there, then if the financial system accurately reflected the physical reality, it would create an issue sufficient producer credit 
to catalyze that production. In other words, if you've got the need and you've got the means to meet the need in the real world, then the financial system should just be a neutral tool that helps you do what you want to do in the real world. It shouldn't be a limiting factor. And, uh, you know, we can do whatever we want with the financial system. We can design it according to whatever conventions we want. Since you know, the bulk of the money supply exists in the form of digital numbers, we can create as many of those as we need to realize whatever production we um, want to realize in order to meet what, whatever human needs there are. So, for example, if uh, there's a, a need for more doctors or more hospitals and we've got the labor, we've got the raw materials, we've got the technology, then finance shouldn't be the, the limiting factor. Finance should just uh, be in a position to issue whatever producer credit is necessary to, to make that production real. So that's what the financial system would look like if it accurately reflected um, our useful productive capacity. Right? We'd put, that means that the, the real world would be in the driver's seat and the financial system would be a, a servant, basically. And on the level of production, something similar should occur. So whenever something is produced, if there is not sufficient income being distributed in the process of the production of that particular good or service, then the financial system should be designed in such a way that additional consumer credits can be created and issued either directly to consumers or on their behalf in order to ensure that there's an equilibrium, that the two sides are in balance so that if in the physical world we've produced $100 million worth of goods, then in people's pockets, so to speak, or in their bank accounts, there should be $100 million of consumer purchasing power so that the two sides equate and um, all the goods and services that are on offer, provided that they're desired, will be distributed and producers can meet all of their costs. Unfortunately, under the existing system, there's this, as I was saying before, there's this underlying deficiency of consumer buying power because whenever we produce anything under the existing financial system, we're generating costs and prices at a faster rate than we're distributing incomes. And so... There's, there's that fundamental underlying imbalance. Now, the existing system has various ways of compensating for that. Uh, it, in the main, it compensates for that by relying on some economic agent to get deeper into debt. So maybe it would rely on consumers to go and get a mortgage or a car loan or a student loan or lines of credit, for example, to sort of compensate for the lack of buying power that's in the economy. Or it might re rely on governments to borrow money let's say, from the central bank or from other sources in order to spend it on public production uh, or public services that are not going to be sold directly to the public at, you know, at the same time. But it's, you'll pay for it in taxes sometime down the road. And that's another way of compensating for the lack of, of consumer buying power. And the third way, of course, is to insist on constant economic growth. So if you ins incentivize production for export or capital production on the part of private productive organizations, companies, etc., then that's another way of maintaining equilibrium under the existing system. Douglas says, in lieu of all of that, 
which is just extra effort and, and therefore it, it's inefficient, we could simply have an organ of the state call it a national credit authority, which could measure the gap and monetize it with debt-free credit, credit that doesn't have to be paid back to the issuing agent, and distribute it to consumers or on their behalf. And that would bring the system into equilibrium, and it would also ensure that we're not going deeper and deeper into debt in order to buy in full what we've already produced. And the oh, right two, there, right there, Oliver, you, you've hit a nice plateau, um, because in describing what would correct the current system, at the same time, you've shown what's wrong with it. And that's that we have to dig a hole every time that we want to get something off the production line and dig ourselves deeper into debt just to buy our daily bread. And we should not have to be one penny in debt to purchase anything under the sun, really. I mean, realistically, whether it's an automobile, a domicile, a.k.a. shelter or home, or everyday groceries and gasoline and things like that, debt should never be part of the equation. And it is, and that's what's so encumbering. And so, yeah, this this explains the remedy and the problem at the same time. I just wanted to point that out. Sure, yes. And, uh, yeah, you're quite right. If we have paid for something in physical terms, which would have to be the case if it exists, right, if some good or service is on the market, then it's been paid for. Uh, everything that was needed to bring that good or service into existence has been paid for physically, uh, the labor, the raw materials, the technology, it's all been consumed, in a sense, in order to produce that particular good or service. And if the financial system were a structurally honest system, if it were designed to give us an accurate reflection of what's going on in the physical world, then what's been paid for physically should be capable of being paid for financially without us going any deeper into debt. In other words, we should have enough income free of any additional debt to offset the costs and prices of the goods and services that have already been paid for in a physical sense. And so the, the two mechanisms for compensating for the lack of consumer buying power in the economy that Douglas proposed were a compensated price discount, um, sometimes called the national discount, which basically involved retailers lowering their prices by a percentage that could be 10%, could be 15%, could be 20%, uh, depending on the, the consumption production ratio, which I can get into later on. But the idea is that they would lower their prices by that percentage, and the National Credit Authority would reimburse them the difference. So by lowering, lowering their prices, it would become easier for people to buy their products. They wouldn't require as much purchasing power to meet the prices, and so the, the gap between prices and incomes would be lessened in that way. And the retailers wouldn't be out of pocket because they would be reimbursed to the degree that they lowered their prices, and that would allow them to meet their costs. That let, let me just course. interject there, Oliver. That's like a reverse sales tax, and I think that would help the audience live and on the archive understand. If we can do a sales tax, if we have the mechanism for that, then we could also do what you're describing, but it would be, if you will, a reverse sales tax. Yes, that's, that's a good way of uh, explaining it. And um, 
And this mechanism would only come into operation if a purchase was made. So the, the money that would be created to reimburse the retailers would only be created if, in fact, a consumer decided to purchase whatever it was at the, the discounted price. The other mechanism that Douglas proposed is called a national dividend. And the idea there is that everyone, let's say every citizen of a country who should be regarded as a shareholder in his economy, would receive a certain payment um, from the National Credit Authority, again, of, of debt-free compensatory consumer credits uh, on a regular periodic basis. So it could be, let's say, once a month, maybe you'd get $1,000, $1,500. It depends on what the size of the gap is. And that would be a, an income that everyone would have access to that is delinked from employment status. So everyone would get it, whether they're employed or not employed. Now, this is different in kind from a universal basic income because proposals for a universal basic income, and they're talking quite seriously now of introducing one in Canada, I think, the number that has been floated is about $2,000 per person per month. Universal basic income is generally conceived within the context of the orthodox financial system, the existing financial system. So that means the only way to pay for that would be through redistributive taxation, so you rob Peter to pay Paul, or by increasing the public debt. Whereas what Douglas proposed is something that does not require redistributive taxation. We think taxes are far too high and should be less, much less than they are. And it doesn't inquire, require increasing the public debt because it's funded through monetary reform and the creation and issuance of sufficient debt-free credit to offset the surplus production debts that are coming forward in the system to be liquidated, but for which insufficient consumer income have been distributed in the process of production. So it has, it has those two advantages, and it, it um, has further advantages um, in comparison, let's say, uh, not just with the basic income, but with existing social programs. If we had a national dividend, you could eliminate many social programs, uh, or at least reduce them significantly. So things like welfare, uh, unemployment insurance, pensions, even public pensions, if everyone had a national dividend, then everyone would have a certain degree of security and freedom and independence. And um, we wouldn't then have to provide sort of socialistic-based uh, compensatory mechanisms to cover those people who wouldn't survive otherwise. And all of the Let me interject there. Uh, yep. Oliver, let me interject there. That's an important plateau, too, that this is not socialism, even though some people listening in a sort of superficial way might mistake this for some sort of variant of socialism. But from my own independent studies, and I asked hard questions of this, I wasn't sold right away when I first learned about social credit back in 08. But I did convince myself with my own studies that this is not state socialism. Correct. So, one, you know, before we had the confusion with the, the CCP social credit, the confusion that we often encounter, depending on, on the country and the cultural context, was, oh, you know, it's, it's social credit, so it must be some form of socialism. And as a matter of fact, Douglas is unequivocal, 
social credit has nothing to do with socialism of any kind. Not only is it not socialism, it's anti-socialist. And I would even go so far as to say that um, I think that monetary reform along the lines that Douglas uh, outlined is really the only way that we could ever approach the t sort of ideal that libertarians have, which is a society with smaller government, much less taxation, much less regulation. Because until the public authority that has the responsibility for, for certain basic infrastructure, like the financial infrastructure, until it regulates money, which is the regulator of all economic activity, until it regulates money in line with reality and in line with the natural law, there will always be all these various forms of dysfunction, financial, economic, social, political, cultural, environmental, etc., which will emerge and which then provide a pretext for increasing government intervention. So the idea is if we solve a core problem, which is, you know, in the level of production is this imbalance between cost prices on the one hand and incomes on the other, if we solve that problem in a way that achieves a distributive equilibrium, self-liquidating equilibrium, then all of the imbalances and, and dysfunctions that currently emerge from the lack of the underlying lack of consumer buying power won't exist, and therefore the government won't be called on to intervene in various ways to reestablish some semblance of homeostasis. So it's um, it's it, the idea basically is forget about the symptoms. Let's go to the core cause or problem, and if we solve that in an appropriate fashion, then the symptoms should disappear. Uh, very good. We got about seven minutes left, um, Oliver. And yeah, that you've tackled, and I think it's important to tackle these claims that you know this is like the Chinese system. Listen to the name; it's the same or that it's some sort of variant of socialism. And I think you've done an able job of knocking down those two objections. I would just add, too, that there's one other claim or belief when people hear this, that there'll be wild inflation. Why would that not be the case? Right. So because the, the dividend and the discount are based on the size of the gap as it's been measured by the National Credit Authority, which would have to keep a national set of books, both a balance sheet for the nation with assets and liabilities, and also a national profit and loss account. Because they're based on, on the size of the gap as that's been measured, so far, you know, insofar as we don't create too much compensatory consumer credits, there'll be no demand pull inflation, right? We're not, we're not talking about producing an arbitrary amount or producing huge amounts of money. We're just talking about producing enough compensatory credits to offset the costs and prices that are coming forward to be liquidated. So as, as long as you keep those two things and two sides in balance, then there shouldn't be any demand pull inflation. The present system is inherently inflationary because, in two ways, sometimes we do produce too much compensatory credit, although it's, you know, they're not debt-free consumer credits, like a dividend or a discount, but sometimes banks give too much 
debt money to consumers. Sometimes too much debt money is, is given to the government. Too, sometimes there's too much economic growth, like in a boom. And then what happens is you get demand pull inflation that way. But because we live in a debt money system where all or virtually all money is created out of nothing but has a corresponding debt, it has to be paid back with interest. We try to dig ourselves out of this this deficiency of consumer buying power by contracting additional debt. And that debt has to be paid back at some time down the road, and it's going to eat into existing incomes. And the easiest way, of course, to see this is with the consumer loan, right? If I don't have enough money to buy all the goods and services I need this week, then, you know, for my job or other sources of income, then I might go to a bank, get a credit card or a loan or whatever, and borrow additional money into existence so I can get access to those goods. That's good for me because I get access to the goods, and it's good for the economy because businesses can sell goods that they have on offer that wouldn't be sold otherwise, and they can meet their costs. But it's also putting me in a position of debt. And so at some point down the road, my regular income is going to start to um, be further diminished because I can't spend it all on the goods and services I need. I have to start paying back the debt I incurred, and everyone else who is in that position will be doing the same thing. So what ends up happening is we can't maintain the standard of living, so we have all this debt that's got to be serviced, so then we go on strike or whatever. We, we demand that uh, we be given wage increases, salary increases, in order to maintain the standard of living. And then, of course, those things eventually filter into the market as an increase in prices because the businesses that have given those wage and salary increases have to spend more money to provide that, and they have to get that either from their own capital or from loans or from somewhere. And so this increases prices, and so it creates a wage-price spiral. So there's this whole cost-push element of, of inflation that's inherent to the debt money system. And if instead of relying on debt to fill the gap, you fill it with debt-free credit, then not only, you know, provided you don't create too much, not only would there not be demand pull, it actually is also neutralizing the cost push. So it's not just, not only is Douglas Social Credit, if done correctly, not inflationary, would not be inflationary, it would be anti-inflationary. And, uh, and Very interesting. Yeah. So now we've hit another, you might say, the third major point. It's not Chinese social credit. It's not socialism. And not only is it not inflationary, it's anti-inflationary. You might say that knocks down the um, unholy trinity of objections to Douglas social credit um, based on my own independent studies, much of which goes beyond back in time uh, before I met you. So, yes. um yeah, this this is all very interesting, and let's talk a little bit how people can uh, get a copy of, of your writings. Let's talk about that for a minute. I mentioned your website, socred.org, and I mentioned michaeljournal.org. Uh, how can people, uh, can they get your book, uh, Social Credit Economics, for example, on Amazon, or do they need to go to socred.org, or uh, is it both? Yeah, so it's it's available on Amazon and a few other places online. Uh, it's a, it's print to order, so anyone who's interested either in that particular book, Social Credit Economics, which is about 550 pages and sort of lays out 
all the aspects of, of Douglas's economic and financial ideas. Um, they can get that there. I do have three other books. One is on the philosophy of Douglas social credit, so the social philosophy, called Social Credit Philosophy. And there's one called Lives of Our Own, which is basically a comparison between Douglas social credit and the classical distributism of uh, Hilaire, Belloc, and G.K. Chesterton. And then the final booklet that I, I've produced is called The Economics of Social Credit and Catholic Social Teaching. And this deals with the many points of contact between uh, traditional Catholic social doctrine and Douglas social credit. And they, they sort of fit hand in, hand in glove. Uh, in addition to that, there's also a set of animated, professionally animated videos, 30 of them, which explore the key aspects of Douglas social credit, monetary and economic theory, and those are available on YouTube, BitChute, uh, Rumble, and Brighteon. Uh, what is so the anyway, title for those? So if you just go to YouTube, for example, and you, you type in the search bar, Douglas Social Credit, you'll see all sorts of things come up, and, and one of the first few entries will be a cartoon figure of Douglas, and that will be the animation series. Very interesting. Uh, well, we're winding up today's show. Uh, time flies when you're having fun here on the 3rd of January, 2024. Dr. Oliver Hadorn, thanks for being on the show. I understand you want to do uh, more discussion about social credit on Twitter and whatnot. That's something yes. we can look for, and I'll make further announcements about that. Yes, thank you very much, Mark. Yes, and I encourage your listeners to take uh, a serious look at Douglas Social Credit. There are a few barriers to enter, um, to entry, I suppose you could say, but it's well worth the effort. Uh, thanks again for being on the show, and thanks for listening, ladies and gentlemen, live and on the archive. I'm your host, Mark Anderson, here on Stop the Presses. We'll see you next week. Stay tuned for the next show here at republicbroadcasting.org. Happy New Year. John, I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee. It's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumers' house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get, and you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. You can't handle the truth! You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit republicbroadcasting.org today because you